So again, this is going to be part two, a little bit of a continuation from, from this morning. And I, <laughs> I was this afternoon, I was sitting there thinking, I was kind of, kind of reminding me, I'm, I'm really excited about this, what we have here tonight. I hope it means as much to you as it did to me, putting, putting it together. But it reminded me of a number of years ago when we were at our church in Slidell. And I can't remember the exact circumstance of it. I don't know if he said it. I want to say he said it from the pulpit. But it might have been after a service when one of us said something to our pastor about the sermon that he had preached. And he said, uh, he, he said, because um, it was a Sunday night thing, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, I always save my best stuff for the faithful. <laughs> and I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, but our church was very similar in size to this, and this wouldn't, this was not that different, okay? It was a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think he meant, you know, I think there was some truth in that. And so, uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of humorous a little bit. And so, so anyway, if you will turn to me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians, I'm only going to read the focus passage here, which is 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. We've got some other scriptures we'll be, be reading here tonight. And so, 6.10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's Paul speaking about the ministry there in Corinth. So as you will recall, this morning we looked at this same passage of Scripture and we discussed how hope plays an important role in our ability to live, as the Apostle Paul says, which is sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the Christian life. We looked at how this way of living relates to our lives both individually and as a church and how the concept of sorrowful yet always rejoicing is directly related to the gospel message itself. Living as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, though, it is not a slogan. It's a way of life. In fact, I believe that it is the complete way of life. In other words, it is a way of life that recognizes not only God's sovereign control over all creation, which includes each one of us here tonight, but it also recognizes his great love, mercy, forgiveness, and the blessings that he pours on his children over the course of their lives here in this world. Troubles and tribulations in our lives should not surprise us. In John 16:33, we read the following. Jesus making a promise to us when he said, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What should really surprise us are the things that we just meant. We shouldn't be surprised over our trials and tribulations. What we should really be surprised about are the things we just mentioned, that God's love and mercy, forgiveness and blessings are shown in even the smallest amounts to sinners who disobeyed their creator, spit in his face, and crucified his only son. That's us. So tonight... We're going to look at how purpose plays a role in being able to live like the Apostle Paul has written about in 2 Corinthians. Being able to face any trial or tribulation 
that comes into our lives and still be rejoicing. So first, let's look at purpose, just the, co the concept of purpose, because it's really important to our understanding of how this applies to, to, to our lives. My American Heritage Dictionary, um, which is the only dictionary I have, so <laughs> I guess that's not true. I could go online, but anyway, like I still got my little paperback from 50 years ago. It defines purpose as an aim or a goal, a result or effect that is intended or desired. Purpose is an incredibly important word. The human search for purpose, purpose is one of the most powerful forces that exists in this world. In one of Dr. Sproul's lectures that I once listened to on purpose and significance, he tells a story about him having to learn about fundraising. And in this story, when he talks about fundraising, he's, he's recounting uh, the fact that in his role at Ligonier Ministries, he said, I kind of had to learn that that was an important part of being in a ministry was having to be able to get out and raise funds. And he was kind of lamenting the fact that he said, yeah, I actually have to you know, spend some of my time learning about how to go about and do that. And so he was talking about this seminar he had been to to help him learn more about fundraising. And at this seminar, the speaker was the head of the Harvard University Endowment Fund, which is, I'll explain to you in a minute, they're, they, they're a fundraising entity that has had great, great success. And so what this person from the Harvard Endowment Fund was talking about was, is he was talking about this exact thing. He said, you can never, he was explaining how important it was, the desire that each person has for purpose and significance in, the, in this life. And he, people, he said, now what his part was in this seminar, is he said, so what you need to do is you need to take your organization you need to give them a purpose and significance that they can then buy into with you. And, and, and it, I'm not criticizing, but his objective was then they'll open their checkbook more. Okay? So my point is, is that it's just a quick example of the truth about the importance of people in this world and their search for being, having a purpose and having some significance in their life. And we know it worked because I looked it up. Harvard University's endowment fund as of 2019 was approximately $40 billion. So that just kind of adds a little beef to the truism. Right? The power of the search for purpose can also be seen in the unbelievably popular book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Many of you have read it and probably still have a copy of this book in your home. This book was published in 2002, and as of two years ago, it has sold over 50 million copies and been translated into over 85 languages. It has been said that it is the second most translated book in the world after the Bible and is the best-selling hardcover nonfiction book of all time. Now, I'm not endorsing this book. I kind of have some criticisms of the book itself, but my point is not to endorse the book, but I want you to see that it's an example 
of how its popularity shows us the drive that people have to have purpose. They line up by the millions to buy this book, by the 50 millions, because it talks about the idea of having purpose in our lives. Well, because this force is so powerful, when we think about purpose, we need to be very careful in our thinking. If we're not careful in our thinking, we will get confused, especially as relates to men's purposes and God's purposes. We can develop our own purposes and devise plans to make these purposes come to fruition. People do it each and every day. But if we are honest, we must agree to the thinking that comes from the old saying, the best laid plans of mice and men. If that phrase is not familiar to you, what it means is that no matter how well and prepared we are, there are still things that are out of our, outside of our control that can unravel even the best plans that we can ever make. When we look at the true purpose for our lives, we must look to God. He is the only one who can say what we find in Job 42.2 when he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's the only entity, the only person who can make that claim. So what I want us to do is I want us to look here quickly at four things that God tells us that his purposes are. And then we're going to take a couple of examples of God's purpose, especially in suffering. And we're going we're to wind that in at the end, okay? So God tells us in his word, this is not intended to be a totally exhaustive list, but these are four things that I found that I thought were important to the message tonight. So number one, God tells us that his purposes are, first, they're his. Okay? They belong to him. As we just read in Job, and it's really, you know, if you, do, if you look at the English, I'm going to read it again. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Here, these are the personal pronouns make it crystal clear that these purposes are God's and God's alone. They only belong to him. So that's number one of what his purposes are. Number two, God tells us that his purposes are, if we are believers, they are for our good. We only need to look as far as Romans 8.28 to see this clearly and unambiguously where God's word says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm not really sure what to add to that. You know, God's purposes are clearly for the good of his children. So, even if those purposes include things like suffering, we're going to see that in these examples. They're for our good. So God's purposes are his. They're for our good as believers. Number three, God's purposes show up in his presence. He's not absent when his purposes are accomplished. Even when we don't see or feel him, he promises to be with us as though <coughs> through it. 
He promises to be with us through it as we read in Psalm 23:4 verses that are so familiar to you, but maybe you haven't thought about it like this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in the middle of our troubles, God is there, and he's bringing along his shepherd tools to ensure the victory, that he gets the job done, that he accomplishes his purpose. So God's purposes are his, therefore our good. They're done in his presence. And then the fourth thing is they involve us, but they don't depend on us. Thank God <laughs> that they don't depend on us. God's purposes to spread the gospel throughout the world is a great example of this. It is clear in scripture that the preaching of God's word is the primary tool, not the only tool, but the primary tool used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. But would God's plan depend on weak and sinful people? We read exactly that in 1 Corinthians 1.21 where it says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Coming, so Paul's even talking about his own preaching as foolishness. right? And I think if I could depend on any preacher, it would have been the Apostle Paul. But you know, he, he understood that... It didn't depend on him. It depended on God. So, four things that God tells us about his purposes. They're his. They're for the good of his children. They're done in his presence. He's with, he's there when his purposes are accomplished. And they involve us, but they don't depend on us. So, as you think about those four things this, this week, and as you think about the idea of what it takes to live sorrowful yet always rejoicing well when we apply this many times a picture is worth a thousand words and I want to look at a couple of examples as a way of application tonight some examples that illustrate how God's purposes are brought forth in the suffering of his people the first one is Job no big surprise there but maybe you haven't thought about it like what we're, like what we're going to say here in just a second. We all know the story of Job. I don't need to recount the story. The suffering he endured was thankfully much greater than any of us will likely know in our lifetimes. Job suffered horribly, but not because he sinned, but for the purposes of God. And this upset Job, this puzzled Job, like it would any of us. And when Job questions God for the reason and then presses God for an answer, God's reply to Job, I'm summarizing this in my own words, okay? But it sounds something like this. I'm God. You are not. I do not owe you an answer. And I love you. That's what God tells to Job. I love the way that this is commented on. If you look at the notes section of the Reform Study Bible, I think this is, is, is so awesome. It says, in his appearance to Job, 
God does not mention the subject of Job's suffering, much less give the reason for it. Job learns that he must rest his case in the hands of a sovereign and good God who is not his enemy. I think that's great. I love that. I think that's just a great way to summarize that. You know, we, we can trust God. He's not our enemy, even though we don't understand. Even though we don't know, he is fully trustworthy. I love the way they say that in the study Bible. The second example that I'd like to give you is from the blind beggar in John chapter 9. You know, I've, I've, I've told you many times, that's my favorite chapter in all the Bible, John chapter 9. It's like a Leatherman tool to me. That thing's got every, it's got every tool on it, okay? You could, you could preach from John chapter 9 for 10 years, I think, and, and never even get out of it. I, so I always wind up, kind of my mind always winds up coming back there. But here in John chapter 9, we read the following. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're usually like the disciples were here. We're seeing a bad situation in terms of cause and effect. I believe we do this, I don't know if it's subconscious, psychological, or whatever, however, whatever makes us do that, but I believe we do this because we're anxious. We see a bad situation and we're anxious to find someone to assign blame to for that bad situation. And guess what? That person we're going to assign blame to, it ain't us. We're always going to be looking to, to pass the buck, to look at cause and effect, okay, and, and find someone that we think we can blame that situation on. But we have to remember that this man's life, and he was fully into adulthood when this incident happened. He wasn't a child. He had lived into an adulthood, whatever, that we don't have the exact age, but he was a man, okay? And he had spent his life begging on the corner for anything he could get. And there's, anyway, there's a lot of things we could say about that. But this man's life into adulthood was marred by dire poverty and hopelessness because, <laughs> because God purposed all along to use it on that day. It can be difficult to reconcile God's sovereignty and love in cases like this. But Christ healed his sight and his soul on the spot that day. And he used him to give an almost unbelievable rebuke to the Pharisees that day. It's amazing what this uneducated, formerly blind beggar had to say his simple argument to the Pharisees is so powerful. God used him to accomplish these goals. And, and so there's a couple of examples. So we think about the, you know, the four things. So, so God tells us that his purposes are his, that they're good for his believers, for his children, his promises are good. They're for our good. They may not feel good at the time, but they're for our good. They're in his presence. He's not away 
He's not aloof. He's not somewhere else. He's there when it happens, and he's there for us like he promises us in Psalm 23. And they involve us, but they don't depend on us. He's responsible. He's responsible for the result. As we close, there's a great passage in 1 Peter. I think we mentioned that this morning that, you know, 1 Peter is a fantastic book, uh, especially chapter 1, but this is in, in, in chapter 4. But uh, for, for people thinking about suffering, 1 Peter is great. Those, he wrote that to those people who were suffering in the diaspora. <clears throat> he says here in 1 Peter 4.19, God says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Okay. That's a powerful phrase. That's, 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 that's not a throwaway right there. Okay. Our suffering... We're not underneath his, we're not outside of his power and his will. God accomplishes everything he wills and purposes to do. But we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, Christian, tonight if you are suffering, or maybe I could, should more accurately say when you are suffering in this life, think about how God may be using this to reveal his purposes and rest in his sovereignty, knowing that even if you never know this side of glory, what the specific purposes are in that situation, they are God's purposes and they're being used for your good. We can fully and totally entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Think about what a great privilege it is to be used by God in any way especially as his means to accomplish his purposes and spread the gospel. So ponder that, and this year be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your purposes. We thank you for your love and your sovereignty, all these things that you tell us that you are. Father, we thank you that you stoop down to tell us anything about yourself. And Father, we just thank you that we can lay back and trust in you. Not that we can lay back and do nothing, but Father, we can, we can rest in you. We can know that they're your purposes, that you use them for the good of your children. Father, that, you're, that you use us in your purposes and that you're there when your purposes are being accomplished. Help us to see that. Help us to rest in that. And as we do suffer in this life, help us to see that it's all part of being able to live, as Paul commanded us, to be sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Okay, Clay, whatever you... Uh, uh, 330.